This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not an offer or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell securities. SNN Network, SNN Inc., and the Planet Microcap Podcast and the representatives are not licensed brokers, broker dealers, market makers, investment bankers, investment advisors, analysts, or underwriters. We do not recommend any companies discussed. We may buy and sell securities in any company mentioned and may profit in the event those securities rise in value. We recommend you consult with a professional investment advisor, broker, or legal counsel before purchasing or selling any securities referenced in this podcast. Welcome back, everybody, to the Investors Roundtable, the last Investors Roundtable of 2020. I'm your host, Robert Kraft. You can follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Kraft. That's B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-A-F-T. And today's episode is hindsight is 2020, because guess what? That is actually, you can say that, and it is the truth. Hindsight is 2020. Uh, as, as, as you know, from an investing perspective, of course, this is the investors roundtable. So that's what we got going on today. Let me introduce you to our panelists. It's an OG crew today that I'm very excited to have. I, I know Kevin just learned the meaning of OG, so I think he thinks it's now a compliment. So uh, we got <laughs> we got Kevin Shea, the good prick at the good prick, and we need we're I think we're what like 13 followers away. We're like we're yeah, almost there. Encouraging. You're surging. You're you're surging like some of these microcaps we've seen the last couple of days here. So <laughs> let's get you You're up. Going there. viral, which is a theme for 2020. But um, <laughs> oh man, Gary, we got Gary Reby, host of In the Market Trenches. Uh, Gary, what's going on? Just living the dream. Just living the dream. That's right. And then we got all the way. He's actually he doesn't have to have a fake background like like the other three of us right now. He's actually in a very beautiful place. So we got Stephen Keel set up a remote from Miami, right? Yeah. Sorry. Let me learn how to do that mute button. But yeah, great, great to have you here. Great to be here on the last day of the year uh, with everyone. Uh, I came into Miami last night. The weather's a little bit nicer than New York, so happy to be here and. Looking forward to talking about some stocks. Yeah, no, it's great to have you on, and great. To, and and let me just start off say thank you guys, you you know, for being consistent and 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 jumping on here whenever you're available, and uh, you've added a lot of value to the show. So I, I definitely appreciate you. I know I should probably say that for the end, but I'll I'll say it, I'll start off right now because we had a lot to cover. You know, the theme being this hindsight in 2020. You know, there's so many themes that have gone on this year. I mean, I, I think most of us would agree we've lived at least two or three investing lifetimes just in 2020 alone. So, I mean, I think the most logical place to start off, you know, if we're looking hindsight 2020 is the COVID trade, you know, as investors and what, how, how we were to think about everything, how it changed everything, changed not just from investing, but just everything. So, you know, I'd love to kind of, Let's let's get a little reflective on that. You know, uh, take us back to that March 11th. It was it March 11th when everything then shut down, and then I think the actual bottom was what March 18th. So you know, let let's take us back to that time, and then maybe think about some of the lessons learned from that. So, uh, who wants to start? Stephen, Kevin, Gary, whoever whoever takes himself off mute first. Yeah, I mean, I I remember that evening specifically. Uh, was having a drink out of the bar. Uh, was watching, uh, or I just just uh, had provided notice that the basketball game had been suspended, um, and then Tom Hanks tested positive. So you know, across the board, that's when it really got serious, and you realize that this would begin to affect actual day-to-day -day life. Uh, you know, when when the basketball game is NBA is suspended, um, our most beloved actor in the world has it 
uh, people are beginning to to die. Uh, I was in New York at the time, and you have people who are in the hospital. Things are surging, and the effect it had on the markets at that point, which really, you know, when we think about the grand scheme of thing, that's the last thing you want to worry about. Really, you want to make sure that your health is is most important of you and your loved ones. But as it affects what we do day to day, you know, there was really no no bottom <laughs> in sight. And, uh, you know, you could look forward and, and understand that things could get a lot worse. And there was so much uncertainty that you just didn't know what to do, right? So should you sell out things? Should you begin to hedge something? Should you try to get in cash? Should you not do anything? Just, just bury your head and set aside. And ironically enough, if you would have just not done anything, six months later, you probably would have been up on the year. And we can get into uh, some of the timing and, and how quickly things turned around and why it, why it turned around. But it was a time of the highest uncertainty that I've ever had during my experience as an investor, which includes during the financial crisis, because the financial crisis was not affecting your day-to-day -day health uh, of everyone potentially in the country. And so this was completely different. You had no idea what was going to happen, how quickly the Fed act, what the government was going to do. There was obviously not a high level of confidence in the administration to tackle this at that time. So, uh, you know, it was it was scary for sure. And it was nice uh, for me that I happened to be sitting in the bar having a couple of drinks. That was the best thing to do at that particular time. Yep. I think drinking was a theme for 2020. I remember that I was selecting, uh, you know, I was going to the local uh, Bottle King here. And I was selecting the craft beers I was drinking by their percentage ABV and trying to match it up with the market movements for the day. So there were there were some strong ABV IPAs that were that were drank during the time of March. And I think there was an 11 percent day, which I had to look a little bit harder and find the right exact one for it uh, on the downs down or up. I mean, like I was just trying to make sure that whatever I was drinking was matched up and consistent with the market movement for the day. And uh so that was a, that was a pretty consistent theme of mine, but uh, yeah, I mean, 2020 is I couldn't have predicted it. It's something I'm never gonna forget, and uh, I, I just hope we don't do it again. Yeah, I think when we started these TIRs, Bobby, the the commentary right from the very beginning was that the uh, the issue was created, and it created certain anxieties. And certainly quite a bit of uncertainty. I think that was the word that's been carried over the course of the time during these conversations that we've been having is one of uncertainty. <clears throat> I remember Yaron was talking about this idea of uh, COVID premiums and COVID discounts. I think that's something that actually did come into play. The interesting thing to me is, is, the, uh, is the speed of the recovery. I thought it was dramatic. It's, it's actually unbelievable when you really get down to it is that the, the level of fear, the level of uncertainty and to come out of this thing with a market that's even significantly more, uh, I don't want to say stable, but certainly the prices are ridiculously high these days. So it's really fascinating when you look at the entire perspective of 2020. You know, it was a massive crash, don't lose that, and then a significant recovery. Just, you know, and again, it's pundit, pundit, pundit was sitting down saying, oh, it's going to take forever. I don't understand how you can listen to anybody anymore. When they sit down and say, oh, I know what's going on. I know what's going to happen. This thing's going to be, you know, blah, 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 fill in the blank. And it just fascinates me how, how wrong people can be when they're, I think that they're overwhelmed by politics and some of their decision-making, but rather than looking at this thing as being, again, I've talked about the innovation cycle quite a bit. 
And it's still going on. I mean, we still have lots and lots of different things going on. Now, granted, some of it will slow down and some of it will be impacted, but you know, people still people are still innovating, people are still trying to create businesses. You know, grant you that um, that when you look at small businesses and non 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 um, market type companies, the the, the the discussion is going to be significantly different. But again, I think my my, my general sense of it was you know, 2020 in hindsight was remarkable, uh, just because of the fact that it was recovered so quickly. Yeah, I think people had I think people had a really hard time in March because there were three different things going on, and in terms of like a, from an investor's perspective there was the virus there was the economy and then there was the market and like a lot of people were focusing on the virus and the economy but that didn't necessarily tell you what was going to happen in the market at a certain point and i think people i think people you know their businesses their 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 year was essentially determined by what happened in march and how quickly if they were wrong about the market at the end of March, uh, how quickly they 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 chose to admit that, and I think that that basically how you thought about that and what you did either it was it was make or break for your year. I'll tell you what I did back in March. I shifted my portfolio significantly, and what I did was I banked on the idea of COVID will become the dominant theme throughout the year, and. Um, started to get involved with companies that were in the immun immun immunology business, uh, mask businesses, things of that type. Um, and that was a choice that I made, basically follow the COVID. Um, I had no idea what was going on, but I assumed, presumed that uh, people would be dumping a lot of money into COVID related things. And of course that whole, that choice was very fascinating because you watch the rotation and how, the, how things moved uh, throughout the uh, COVID space, when you start looking at the immunology types of companies and then masks companies and then um, uh, um, needle companies and vaccine companies and things of that type. It's very fascinating to see how quickly um, the thing moved from one sector, one subsector to another. And that was quite a, that was quite a remarkable uh, observation, just staying in one particular market and watching how the thing shifted over time and how things that were in favor in one month were, dis, were disinfavor or in disfavor probably two or three months, hence that. Again, you look at something like uh, mass companies like uh, APT, which I don't own any longer. Um, it was running, 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 and all of a sudden right now it's back, to, it's back to stable, back to the same old business and things of that type. So it is kind of fascinating to see what's going on. And of course, now we're looking at that vaccines and we're looking at uh, uh, antibodies and a variety of different things that are gonna come to, to uh, I don't know what the trend, but they're going to be looking at the idea of vaccines. So again, the whole thing has been shifting. Uh, if, if I made a decision to sit down and say, for example, to, to get out of REITs, which I don't invest in anyway, I mean, I don't know where I'd be sitting right about now. I just haven't got a clue. So it's pretty fascinating to sit down and look around and, you know, you have to shift with the market, in my opinion. And I think that's uh, that might have been a benefit to some people. Yeah. And with regards to the market as a whole, I don't think we can underestimate the power of all of these people at home not working or working remotely, receiving checks from the government, and in some cases, enhanced unemployment benefits, looking to gamble. And they used the market to do that because there were no sports at the time, right? So people who generally would invest in, you know, this is where Dave Portnard came from, which fine, 
you know, he used the market as a way to, I mean, basically gamble uh, that others did too. The Robin Hood effect, which I'm sure we'll get into, was huge here. And, you know, the when you think about why the markets turned around so quickly, clearly Fed intervention, the building on the things and programs and uh, history from the financial crisis allowed them to act much faster. But also you have all of these people, young people, I mean, early uh, 30 and younger with a little bit of cash opening up new accounts, speculating. And that had a major effect, I think, on the uh, on, on a lot of these companies that you know were operationally we otherwise would not be investing in. But it also had a major effect on on uh, the psychology and the mentality of the market and these things kind of built on itself and that allowed kind of CNBC and Bloomberg and everything like that to then show, hey, look, markets are doing great. Uh, let's present a more optimistic and rosy picture when it was not led by the operational performance of the companies or their their prospects in the near or midterm. I agree with you on that entirely about the effect of at home investing and Robin Hood, it did have a dramatic impact. You know, again, well, I think there may very well be some interesting long-term studies that are done in hindsight to see whether or not that's a, an effective uh, support for the market or whether or not it's a disincentive. Well, let me ask you it's, this it's question. It's interesting because the smarter that you, it, 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 2020 is an interesting year because like you, you almost had to, it, it's, it's funny because you almost had to give back like 30 or 40 IQ points if you had them in a, in a, in a lot of different ways because in order, like, it was a very easy year to like sort of outsmart yourself or to outthink yourself and and to and to do the wrong thing. Um, boy, I don't know what that says about us, but uh, um, it was funny because it was like now everybody's watching, you know, like sort of the when you're when when your neighbor who you think you're smarter than is getting richer than you, it's really it's really, really hard not to do the wrong thing. Yeah, but does it piss you off? You know, I'm a big believer that envy is one of those things that like, isn't like Charlie Munger once said that envy is the only one of the seven deadly sins that isn't any fun to do. So like, and I kind of think that that's right. So like, you know, I'm kind of on the mindset that other people will always be getting rich faster than me. And that's, that's not such a bad thing. I don't really, once I learned to give up on that, that was, didn't, it didn't really bother me so much anymore. Look, I, what I'm afraid of is you got all these people coming into the market. They're buying Tesla. It goes up 10 times this year. Other companies like that. And then they're going to continue to reinvest, continue to reinvest. It's just like gambling. They won their first round, right? Yeah. And then they're going to lose everything that they got plus some over the coming year. And that's what is happened it? during the tech, tech time period. That's what happened during real estate uh, in 06, 07. Um, and that's what's going to happen here. Yeah, but I mean, a bunch of people were mailed checks from the government that they went yeah, off. Whether the markets as a whole, well or not. Yeah. Sorry, Stephen, you, you Yeah, well, the issue is, you know, the next couple of yeah, years, yeah. we don't know what the markets are going to We don't know what the market, what's that? Sorry, was I frozen? But we, it was for, for, for a quick second. Oh, sorry. So we don't know what the markets are going to do, but over the next few years, a lot of these high-flying companies from this year, there's no way they can keep up. And it's highly, highly more likely than not that these will be the ones that crash. And these are the companies that all of the retail investors piled into. And, and when, they, when they're by options, when they make speculative bets in the short term, that's when they're gonna get screwed, lose their money and realize you know, that the speculation and gambling uh, is just like these other, other prior bubbles.
I don't think that's such a bad thing. I mean, if you're you're breeding a whole new generation of investors and they got to learn lessons just like everybody else, right? I mean, like that's how you learn. I mean, uh, everything I've ever learned is because I've lost money in one way or another. Yeah, I don't know I don't about know you guys. If it's good or bad, it just is. Yeah. yeah, but I think that's an opportunity for us. And when you talk about envy and how your neighbor did really well because he owned a speculative stock, you know, during this time period, you know, you just got to say, look, more power to you. Don't think, don't think that that's replicatable though. And for us, when, when we're here for the long term, trying to survive over 20, 30, 40 year time periods in the markets, you can't chase that stuff. And you get, you got to be really careful to not get caught up in that psychology. Will you be shorting some of these things, these relatively well-known high-flying unicorns that don't have anything fundamental to sit on? That's a good question. I don't know. Timing would have really screwed you, though. For, you yeah, know. and take a, take a look at some of these electric vehicle or EV companies that are out there. They have $100,000 in annual revenue, yet their market caps are $2 billion or some number. You know, again, it's I can name names, but it's not worth it. I mean, I think we have to recognize now, many of these things that uh, exist, and the, the, many of them are micro caps. Um, some of them are still doing the doing the dog and pony shows. Um, so it's really fascinating to see how how you might even be able to identify some of the sectors that could come crashing down very quickly. Well, here let's. We already went into this a little bit, so I'm, I want to get into this Robin Hood effect, and I want to I, I want to ask you all, you know, what you think is the sustainability of this effect you know i i think you kind of more or less answered it in a way where you know look you're gonna have the real there it's we're not here to say that everybody who opened a new account this year on Robinhood is a speculative investor you know there were actually my there's gonna there's gonna be real investors that might lose a little bit but then you know survival of the fittest darwin darwinism you know and and stick around learn those lessons and get better you know but what what is the what what has what is the Robin Hood effect on the market now as, as we move forward here? I mean, is well, it real gotta, interest? Is it sustained interest? What's happening? You gotta you gotta look at Robin Hood a little bit differently. I mean, ultimately, I think what's happening is is that there is an impression that it's full of crazy people. Um, but when you look at the top 100 names that are invested by Robin Hood, they're solid names. I mean, for oh, a yeah. long time, I mean, we talked about this in the past for a long time. Ford was the number one. Um, issue that was uh, supported. Um, then again, you look at AMD. I mean, AMD is probably and maybe they were giving away the Ford stock, though. You know, when you yeah, yeah, that's what it was <laughs> <laughs> at three bucks, whatever it was. Yeah. yeah, you know. So in many, many ways, I don't know whether or not the Robinhood effect is is a bimodal effect where you have a bunch of people who are indeed looking at it as a long term investment, trying to find some stable companies, trying to secure you know a future, and then there's the other people who are running it as spec as a as a speculative opportunity. So again. There may be there may be uh, modalities in in Robinhood that uh, will differentiate over the long term. I sort of yeah. think the Robinhood effect, like it's maybe that's that's a that's a broader name that's applicable to more than Robinhood. But I mean, like the Robinhood specifically. I mean, I'm looking. I see estimates of it. Oh, Siri wants to tell me the real Robinhood. Um, the, the Robinhood. <laughs> they've got. I mean, but the best estimates I've seen is that they've got $20 billion out under management and the average account size is $1,500. So I don't know. It sort of feels overstated to me. I just think it's just, you know. I actually think that, Gary, that's a really good point is that, it, and, and I think that was a good clarification is that the Robinhood effect is kind of, it's more than just those who signed up for an account on Robinhood. It's kind of this overall idea of speculation, you know, and some of what Steven said, this, you know, transfer, transfer of sports gambling to 
stock market gambler. You know, and I think I think it has that it's you could call it the Robin Hood effect, the De Portnoy effect. I don't know if there's a combined term for that, but I think it's just more or less that. It could be more Portnoy because he embodies. Uh, I mean, and and I think Dave, I think he net net, he's probably. I, I think all of this and he is probably a good thing, and I don't, and I don't mean it because I think that speculation is a good thing, although it's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just that you're getting more people in, interested in investing and thinking about their financial lives and and the future and. Even if they lose a month, like if you get a bunch of millennials and Gen Z people who wind up getting taught some expensive lessons, that's not such a bad thing. And you've, you've read another generation of investors. And I don't think that's such a bad thing either. I think that, you know, net net, this is all good. I mean, it, I mean, there's going to be some bad things. There's going to be some things that, you know, make you scratch your head and go, I don't know why that happened. And, uh, you know, as a, as a seasoned investor, it seems a little crazy to me, but like, I don't see why this is such a bad thing. Uh, and I would even wrap that into like the SPAC stuff that we're seeing, like we're talking about review in 2020. There's definitely bad stuff going on there, but you know, I, I don't know. I think more companies coming to market and coming to market sooner, like, you know, my, you know, I, I think that net net, that's not, that's not such a bad thing. And a lot of them will blow up and, you know, you I'll just, take the other side of that. I'll take the other side of that. I, I think I agree that, it's good to get more people interested in the market. I think the negative comes in with the mentality that the market is a gambling kind of mechanism that's short-term. I don't want more short-term oriented people in the market. I want people coming into the market who want, who understand that buying a stock is buying a piece of ownership in a company over the long term. I don't want them coming in as day traders. And I don't think that's healthy for the market. And I think that leads to this increased volatility and misunderstanding of what these companies are. And what I worry about is these day traders who come in, who lose money, these speculative types of things. This happened in, in the, again, the financial crisis happened um, in the tech bubble beforehand. What I worry about is then that leads to additional kind of government-oriented protections, um, government intervention, uh, you know, rules and regulations on businesses that have something to do with kind of the ownership side of it and not the actual freedom of them to operate in the way that they see fit over the long term. Um, and, you know, look, we're going to see this. We already have the subsidies and other government interventions for companies like, like Kevin said, the EV companies that, you know, when Tesla crashes, when it crashes, if they don't actually buy, if they don't do an AOL Time Warner type merger, which I wouldn't be surprised if they do, but if they don't do something like that, and Tesla crashes, there will be government intervention because so many people and so many, uh, uh, you know, small retail investors own a piece of Tesla. And that's what I'm afraid of. Yeah, I mean, Tesla's so interesting and full disclosure, no position one way or the other. And I've never had a position one way or the other in Tesla, but it's such a fascinating, like that's, a, that's almost like a sub, like that, that should have its own like 10 minute sort of what happened in Tesla in 2020 and then te the, the whole Tesla Q crowd on Twitter and everything else. Um, I think it's just, it's super fat. It's super fascinating to me because uh, like having no position in it, like I'm, I'm, I'm on the one hand rooting for Elon Musk to be a, a huge success because I think net net, that's probably good for humanity. On the other hand, like I look at some of the things that they're, that's going, that are going on there and I go, well, geez, the accounting, oh, why the accounting and, and, you know, we're being very promotional and we're doing all these things that I really don't like. Um, it's, it's just such a, 
there's so much wrapped up in Tesla. And then you have just the fact that it went, I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't have a quote up on, on the screen, but it went bananas this year, I'll say. Do you and, want to invest in a company that has so much key man risk? Let's say something happened to him. Let's say he goes to Mars, right? <laughs> he wants to go on the ship and to go to Mars. Let's say he catches Corona, which he probably already had, it sounds like. Um, and something happens to him. He's, he's, it gets debilitated. Think of any other company in the world, including Warren Buffett and Berkshire Hathaway, that would have such a great effect if he was no longer there. If he was no longer there, there's no company. You know, and this is a Fortune 500 company. Yep. Uh, you know, this yeah. is an SP 500 that a wide range of people uh, have ownership stakes in. And yeah. that amount of key man risk is absolutely insane. The interesting thing that I, that I was... I was considering something just the other day about whether or not Tesla investors actually are buying entertainment as part of their as part of their investment. Uh, it's quite fascinating. And right now, I'm running a, I'm running a uh, a poll on on um, Twitter as to whether or not people consider Twitter, uh, uh, Tesla to be either a car company at the or good a software prick. company. The what? A poll at the good prick on Twitter. Yeah, yeah, a poll. And it's really, is is Tesla a car company Looking for it right or now. Is Tesla a software company? And the fascinating thing about it at this point in time, it's basically 50-50. Some people think it's a car company and some people think it's a it's a software company in equal fashion, which is shocking to me because what it says is that nobody knows what the company does. Okay. Literally, it's a funny, funny game. I just voted software company. Oh, okay. Good for you, Bobby. <laughs> You got some votes on there, though. You got 17 votes. This is good. This is yeah, good. This, it, it, that's you know, good engagement. I don't get, get a lot of votes, but I think that there's a it's a it's a small representation. Yeah, I mean, I I think the the overall theme that at least I would love to see for 2021, um, especially on the Robinhood side, is just more educational materials. Because one thing that you could argue for all the other platforms that it wasn't just free to trade on is that there was that barrier to entry where that you did have to pay whatever, you know, whatever the fee is to, to, to make a trade, you know, and when you take that out completely, you're just allowing people to maybe go in, make a speculative buy or sell or short or anything like that with really, I mean, of course, there's the high risk of you losing your investment. That's a huge risk, but the barrier and entry to go and do that is completely taken away. So at least my hope is for 2021 is that they invest a ton in education and making sure that they get those materials out there on a consistent basis. Because Have any of you guys um, read any of the regulatory uh, stuff on Robinhood? Like the math, like the like the the Attorney General of Massachusetts filed a, a pretty lengthy uh, suit against them, and then the SEC also had a uh, a pretty big settlement with them. Did you guys ever flip through that? Yeah, I did. I, well, I just pulled it up right now again too. But, uh, the Massachusetts yeah. one is is actually more more interesting than uh, than the one the commission had. I mean, the commission got a sort of got something from got a, a good chunk of change from them for uh, disclosure of the order flow stuff. But um, the Massachusetts one was like Robinhood designed themselves to basically be an almost like an addictive gambling thing. So there was like there was one part of the Massachusetts complaint where um, I guess if you wanted some sort of feature, some sort of trading feature on your account. You, that you were like in a contest with all the other Robinhood account holders. And it was like, you had to tap there a thousand times and then you would get this feature enabled. And like, if you like, and you would get bumped up in the queue and whatever. 
And so they're literally trying to train people to go on their app and just start tapping as fast as they can. And it was just like, it, it's like, it, it reminded me more of like a, like a cigarette company than a, than a brokerage company. And they're sort of trying to train people to get these digital dopamine hits, you know? It's That's crazy. Kind of fascinating because what they're doing is it's saying they're suggesting that it's a game. Yeah, it's a gamification. Totally. Yeah. All right. All right. So I want to move to some other themes that were that happened this year. You know, some more hindsight is 2020 type themes uh, from an investor's perspective. And Gary brought this up a little bit, and it's SPACs. You know, we did a full episode on SPACs here. You know, I figured maybe we could cover that a little bit. And you know, Gary started getting into it a little bit here, where he was talking about how uh, you know there that's has potential positive effect on the markets and that some of these smaller companies are now uh, going public a little bit earlier in their life cycles. You know, so let's, maybe let's uh, review this a little bit. You know, uh, SPACs was a craze this year. So uh, what are your thoughts on that? Gary, you started off. So uh, I'll go back to you. You know, I have I've sort of mixed, mixed feelings on it. Um, you know, I, I said, that I think that net net long-term, it's probably, probably not such a bad thing, but I'll tell you, um, and, and I'll frame that in the context of sort of these VC unicorns that are sort of coming to market. Um, the VCs, because there's active secondary markets in some of these biggest investments that they make, um, you know, basically are able to hold these companies until they're almost fully, fully mature. And so, um, you know, as a public market investor, I don't really love that. Um, but, you know, anything that gets companies talking about coming to market, you know, maybe a little less fully, you know, like it, it makes more of a market in some of these things. I think that more opportunities are better than less opportunities, generally speaking. Um, that doesn't come without risk, obviously. You know, people, some of these are going to blow up and people are going to lose money. And, um, but, you know, I, I think that net net, you know, holding companies private longer. I don't know that that's such a good thing for the companies. I don't know that that's such a good thing for the market. And so like just getting companies out there um, sort of in, in, and investable generally uh, or sooner, I don't think that that's such a bad thing. I mean, I mean, I, I, but are, you, are you investing in the SPAC, the potentials of acquisition? Well, that's what seems to be happening. Are you? I, yeah. So, I mean, I've, I've sort of dinked around and traded with some of them, but not really. I mean, like, you know, I, you know, there, a lot of the SPACs themselves, I kind of just view them as trading sardines for the most part. So I've sort of just dinked around with that. And um, as opposed to the eating sardines um, and, you know, I, I, that's just not a way that I'm wired to invest. Like I'm, I'm, I'm not going to be very good at owning something because I think it's going to, somebody's going to, it's going to be a really sexy story and going to go bananas and that kind of thing. Like, I'm just not really wired that way. That's not how, that's not what I'm good at doing, but as an observer of it, like I, I'm, I'm glad that more companies are thinking about going public earlier. And, you know, it bugs me that, you know, um, some of these companies, uh, you know, these recent high profile IPOs, the Airbnbs, the DoorDash, we don't own them. But, um, you know, it bothers me that it's a $100 billion valuation is the first print. And, you know, it, it, you know, it, it, I, I, I would much rather have a broader opportunity set than a narrower one. And so I, I just like on the whole, I just think it's not such a bad thing. I agree with your commentary, Gary. I think that's actually provides some mechanism, an alternative mechanism that's not available to some companies because of the VC uh, management of the company and how the how the VCs have changed their tune 
with regard to uh, how they make their money. Uh, and again, you're seeing so many of these things seven or eight years come out afterwards and they come out at very, very high valuations and then not all of them, but some of them are really trashed, you know, later on throughout the market as they, as I mean, Door, didn't DoorDash, I don't look at it, I think DoorDash just lose half of its uh, market cap just over the last couple of weeks. Something like that. I don't know, I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't follow it all that closely. Don't know. Um, but I look at something like uh, what, I, what again? I think I think that this, there's a, actually a, a similar um, entity or mechanism available in Canada to bring companies public, or at least they get companies established without having to go the reverse reverse merger route that happens in Canada quite regularly. I forget what it's called, uh, but again, it set it sets up the same way. It is basically set up as a means for the entity. Again, I don't know the name. I don't remember the name to uh, merge with this, this uh, new founded business or existing business and go public that way. So again, I don't think this is a new idea. The SPAC is not a new idea. I think it's been no. in existence in Canada for probably a few years already. I think it's, I think it's, it's actually quite old. So um, I think the South Sea company of the South Sea bubble fame was formed as a blank check company whose primary purpose was to do something like to, to go pursue a profit opportunity. I forget exactly how it's written. So if one of you guys want to know, know what I'm talking about or, or can quote it directly, but like it was, it was, a, it was formed almost as a blank check, check company to go pursue profit opportunities that are, you know, of immense value or some, something like that. I forget what the exact one was, but it's like, but that's, I mean, if we're talking about something that's several hundred years old, if, if that's, if that's indeed the case. I mean, I, I will take a balanced view on it though, because like these companies, they're choosing to come this way versus other ways. Well, why? Well, it's faster. Okay, that's fine. Um, but you can make all sorts of forward-looking statements, which you're not allowed to do in like a traditional process. You know, that's that's you know sort of a red flag. Um, you know, and, and like there's a, there's a there's a couple of different ways that these companies can come to market now. And how, how these companies pick and choose to do it should tell you something about the company and it should tell you something about the backers of the company. Um, and these, these VCs all talk out of both sides of their mouth every which way on, you know, this way is a good way versus a bad way. And, oh, you know, there was a big pop on the, on the listing and oh, we, we, we didn't get as much as we could. But like, I've never heard of any VC complaining about, you know, the gap up in a series B to a series C uh, funding round. So like, like what are you guys talking about uh and then you have like companies that can do a direct listing and they're like oh well at least you know we're not leaving all this money on the table but like but you don't have any lockup requirements so like you can just sell everything that day if you wanted it or a lot of it that day if you want it's like i, th I just think that more ways to come to market is better but it also it, 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 there's there's an additional burden on investors to have an increased level of sort of skepticism and understanding the motivations based on you know, the various constraints and things like that associated with each method. Yeah, I think this is a direct effect of what happened with WeWork and their S1 <laughs> situation and everything during that time period, because yeah. now you have a number of companies like Nikola with the SPAC situation in there, they would have attempted to go public via IPO if WeWork would have worked. And I think there are a number of other companies like that as well, that they don't want to be exposed to that type of scrutiny that happens during the IPO process. And this is really the history of SPACs. This is why companies generally went public via SPAC. 
uh, in addition to the, the speed route. And, you know, then it leads into this effect where there are a lot of sponsors and the sponsors are going around now drumming up support. This is a supply side thing uh, at this point. But I, I do think the catalyst for it was the WeWork debacle. Right. I mean, I, I, I another argument I or not argument I make is is it, it it seems that there's still kind of a fundamental change though in how companies are starting to think about what it means to go public, right? You know, the investment banking world is completely changing. It, it needs to change, you know. And as Gary was just talking about here with direct listings and now with SPACs, you know. So how do you guys think about that? I mean, it, it, look, we also look at the microcap world, and there's a huge event coming up that hasn't really been discussed very much, and that's how a whole bunch of stocks listed on the pink sheets and the gray sheets are going to be gone. Okay, unless unless they decide to uplist to you know QB, QX, Nasdaq, NYC, or one one of these exchanges. I mean, there's there's that's a pretty big deal that's coming. I don't know. Anybody have thoughts on? Or also see that? Do you guys haven't seen that news? Yeah. So you know the, the point there is that yeah, the brokers yeah. and the regulations related to the brokers, right, are going to limit the, that availability and. They've already been harassing microcap investors the last couple of years. So, you know, the regulators have and, and some of the brokers. And so that does make it more difficult. And some of these companies don't have the growth potential to uplist or don't have the uh, asset uh, base to, you know, spend that overhead every year. And, you know, it is a little bit uh, disconcerting for those of us who have played in that area previously. And uh, it creates this bifurcation in the market that is uh, disappointing. You know, I agree with Gary that we want to bring in, we want more companies to be public. You know, that's been the problem over the last 20 years, really since Sarbanes-Oxley, that there have been a significant decline in the number of companies that are public and become public every year. And I think all of us want to see more public companies. We want more options. Uh, on the other hand, though, there are more opportunities to invest in private companies forget about those who have already been listed at some point, uh, but but private companies through crowdsourcing, crowdfunding and other things like that, there are more opportunities to do that now than there ever have been. Uh, you know, a typical investor could uh, get access to some sort of VC uh, type thing if they have the ability intelligence to do so, which is, you know, so it, the market has just shifted in some ways to a different area, whether it's more safe or not, you know, that's, that's where the government I think is intervening in, in an unfortunate way. Bobby, you uh, brought up comment early on about uh, how does how do companies change, and, and is is the idea of, of remote uh, remote working uh, going to be taken as a normal course of of, act, of the events uh, in the future? Uh, a variety of things of that type. I mean, we talked about changes of culture as a result of uh, the impact of COVID. We talked about a variety of different things. I know that uh, I know that we have talked about it, you, you and I and and Stephen. But I didn't know whether or not uh, Gary might have a, have, a, have a comment or so or an observation of that. On what specifically? The culture of companies or? Changing, uh, how companies might be changing. Again, if, 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 if the idea of work from home is, is taken on dramatically, it means that people aren't going to be working in offices and things of that type. That's going to have an impact on office, uh, office um, leases and things of that type. It's going to have people moving around, which is something we talked about in the past. You know, and I, yeah, how, I think how does the idea of how the how does the idea of of these COVID-inspired changes 
play out over 2021, 2022, et cetera? I think, I think the things of the world where it's being done this way because it's, because that's, it's always been done this way and we haven't rethought it. Like, I think that there's probably, there's probably sustainable change that occurs there. I think some of the stuff that's purely COVID related and you could make an argument to do either thing. Um, I think you have to just um, sort of orient yourself a little bit more towards the incentives over the longer term. And that doesn't mean it won't take some time to get back to whatever the short, you know, it, it won't take some time to get back to whatever normal used to be, but I think that you probably will. So, you know, in terms of like the work from home stuff, I think it's reasonable to assume that um, working from home will be more socially acceptable, but I don't think it's, I think it's, I, I think it's less reasonable to assume that it can be all the time. And so I, I you know, I'm an owner of a company. I can tell you that um, I would much rather see my partners in person than talk to them on the phone. And I can tell you that, um, you know, we try to be innovative as a company, which in financial services is hard to do because it's not a Financial services, there's not actually a lot of innovation that goes on in traditional financial services, but um, it's really hard to do when you're all remote. And I can tell you that the that the that what we plan to do, is, the stuff that we can think about and plan and say we need to do X and X needs to happen, like that's really easy. Like you can do all that remotely because doing things remotely that you know you need to do is hard. It's all this. It's all the other stuff that's that's more challenging. You know, like it's. It's the it's it's being able to walk over and say, hey, you know, I'm thinking about this. What do you think about it? And I can see that you're not really on the phone or whatever. Whereas if I'm picking up the phone to call Eric or Steve, it's sort of I'm interrupting what they're doing. They need to, you know, it's 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 way harder to have um, uh, what what would I, what would I call uh, some sort of or, or, organic or something. Yeah. Yeah, it's hard. To, it's hard to it's hard to plan and and plan time. You can plan time for some of that stuff, but even that's not that great. So it's like, I don't think I don't think work from home is all it's it's all it's worked up to be. And I like and we've been set up to work home from home since the beginning, and we did it probably, you know, three out of five days most weeks, um, and that was fine. But you still need to have a certain amount of in person. So I think that, I think that. And I don't know if net net that reduces the need for office space or not. Um, and the other thing I'll say about it is, in, in relation to travel, um, I'll just I, I think that people will work from home and travel less until somebody that was in the office got a promotion instead of them. Somebody who got FaceTime with the boss got got ahead in their career. Somebody that um, was going to go make a sale. That, that was that that sent a zoom invite to make a sale lost out to somebody who actually got on a plane and showed up and once that starts to happen you'll see people in suits again you'll see people in planes again and it's it, you know i don't know how long it's going to take for that to happen i don't think it's going to go back to 100 percent of what it was but i do think that um where we sit today is not where it's going to land and so I, I don't know what the investment implications of that are i don't know if i would buy uh, buy New York City real estate or not, or whatever it is, you know, like I haven't really thought that through, but I can tell you that it's not the current status quo. I don't think you can say that this is what's going to, what it's going to be. You know, I think, um, I, I think well, that the, the most acute things people, people think are, uh, they're most vivid. People tend to extrapolate those out the farthest. And I just don't think that that's. Yeah. And human trust to, in order to build trust, you need human interaction and, and connection. And the best way to do that is in person. 
And the second best way is video, seeing each other. The third best way is voice. The fourth best way is written. The fifth best, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so ultimately, like Gary said, to make a sale to uh, any, any industry that requires trust and interaction, that's what business is. Essentially, that's what capitalism is, is a, a web of trust. Um, and in order to do that, uh, those who are willing to have that human interaction are going to be the most successful over time. So it will at some point get back to that, to the degree it previously was, who knows, but that is what is required to be successful and get ahead to make sales. And so to Gary's point that, you know, yeah, people don't want to travel as much for business, fine, but then there'll be one person in the office who does, and that person will be more successful. And then that will require everyone else to go back to traveling for business. Yeah. I think that's well spoken. So, okay, so, you know, I think we covered more or less the main themes that really encapsulated 2020 from an investing perspective. Was there anything that we missed? I think we talked about the main ones. Did we miss anything? Anything else that pops in your head from our conversation that, that that's happened? Well, I think government intervention, the Fed as well, and what that means for the future. And should have had Adrian on here. Yeah, and inflation, you know, are we going to have inflation? Is that going to prop up? Uh, whether it's Bitcoin or gold or other commodity type of things over time. And once demand comes back, what does that do for the price of oil? What does that do for other, you know, aluminum, uh, other copper, things like that? And that's an interesting theme. I don't have answers for that. But the fact that we have so much liquidity in the market, but with that liquidity, it's tied up. It's not currently going into inflation. And will that happen at some point or not? You know, my friend Keith Smith at the Bonhoeffer Fund has a very interesting argument that there is likely to be, his argument is that there is not likely to be inflation over any time of any any serious time period going forward because we have uh, we're in an environment where um, where progress has advanced so rapidly and will continue to advance so rapidly that the cost of production has gone down so much that that is a competing that deflationary uh, side of it is a, a competing element to the additional money that's you know in the market not even money in the market but the liquidity that's being created here and so you have a balance uh net net that is actually deflationary because of the advancement of society uh and and advancement in technology so you know i don't know i don't know the answer to that i think all of us are kind of afraid of all the money that you know the zero percent interest rate stuff negative interest rate in europe uh, all that liquidity in the markets and where that's going and what bubble that'll pop up but I don't think that's a, a one step kind of uh, result. You know, this is a second, third, fourth level thinking thing here that uh, I, I don't think there's a, a way to really feel confidence in a prediction. It's a really interesting argument. Anybody have any thoughts on that? I, I, I'm, I'm still processing that one. Yeah, we should have Keith on at some point to yeah, more, that's, more that's... fully flesh it out uh, because it does it does make sense if you start to go second, third level thinking on it. Yeah. Gary, Kevin, I, I generally agree with that argument. Um, I think that that's the natural state of affairs is for um, competition to drive down prices. I think that it's unique when that doesn't happen. Um, and so as like, who controls pricing is one of the more important questions I ask as an investor in anything. Um, my pushback on that, it's not going to come back is that I think 
everybody likes a little bit of inflation. So if they put their mind to it, um, I do think that the government, if they wanted to, could create it. And um, I don't think that the Federal Reserve could create it. And I, I, if they think that they have the tools to do so on their own, um, I would wonder why they haven't been successful to this point in creating it because it's been an explicit goal that we want inflation to be 2% and they haven't hit that number since they've stated that goal. Maybe they touched it once um, for like a quarter. And so, but I do think that the federal government, if they wanted to do that, could. And so um, I do think that we could enter a world where that happens, um, where, Congress or whomever starts to think about building that into the economy. And that can happen a variety of different ways. It can be a universal basic income. It can be earned income tax credits. It can be um, government provided jobs, you know, guaranteed employment. It could be all kinds of different things, in various shapes and forms. Um, but I don't know that we're gonna see it and see it until that happens. And I sort of wonder if, uh, so there's not gonna be any structural inflation until that happens. You could also theoretically have in, in a debasement event um, is also on the table. And I think that that's similar to uh, FDR in 1934 when he, when he confiscated the gold at $21 an ounce and then repriced it the next day at 35. Uh, or in 1971 where Nixon took us off the gold standard and that set the scenes for 70s style inflation, which was kicked off by a U.S. defaulting on its currency, which is what happened when Nixon took us off the gold standard. It was the U.S. defaulting on its currency. And so I think you can have an event like that as well. So there's a variety of ways that we could see something, um, but I don't think it's going to be Federal Reserve keeps interest rates at zero and that gives us 70 style. Like that, like I don't think that that's, I don't think that that's in the cards, but I do think that if they got, if people, if they got it in their head that um, that was an explicit goal, and it wasn't the Fed's goal to create 2% inflation, but Congress's goal to create 2% inflation. I think that they can do that in conjunction with the Fed. So we'll see. I don't, I don't know. So that's sort of what I, what I keep a, a lookout for, because sending money to people whose marginal propensity consumed is 110% is going to be inflationary, but those people as laborers have no bargaining power. So it's not going to come from that side. It's going to come from the federal government wanting to do it. Well, I think the triggering effect essentially is is if the U.S. dollar loses its its reserve currency uh, status, because then you have a government crisis uh, in terms of the debt. But look, this is not the most exciting conversation here, so I'm happy to move move on from it. And we can talk stocks a little bit more about uh, you know COVID here. But uh, you know, none of this stuff is going to happen tomorrow. I don't think any of us think that. Uh, you know, but at the same time, you want to look at companies and look for areas that are going to benefit either way. You know, and I think as we look at things, even through COVID, there are companies that have some sustainable brands and pricing power. You know, forget about the historical brands like Coca-Cola. We're talking about brands today that have pricing power and in some cases a monopoly effect. And that could be a Google, Apple, Facebook, et cetera today. And those are the types of companies that have done probably will continue to do very well during these tumultuous times, uh, COVID and, and in the future. So, uh, you know, that's the kind of interesting thing to look at. How does COVID affect it? And, and 
um, you know, does that drive more like types of advertising and things like that online uh, over the next year or so? And, and if so, then those online advertising companies are, are the place to be as an investor. Kevin, you have anything to add there? <laughs> Very good. All right. Well, well, I, I want to get into our, our the final topic today, and and that is really you know what some of these themes and what we've seen in 2020. You know, we already kind of started getting into it a little bit here, but I think those are more implications for maybe 2022, 2023 potentially. But with the speed at which everything is happening, who knows? That could have an effect on 2021. So I'd, I'd love to get everyone's thoughts on, you know, what some of these themes and the things that we saw in 2020 from an investing perspective, what the, some of the implications then it might have for 2021. I'm not asking for a crystal ball or where you think the market's going to be, but just what, what might be some carryover that could have some effects that maybe some people haven't thought about yet. So uh, uh, one of the things that I'm looking at right now is the long-term impact of the shifting that's going on in the automobile industry and how the EVs are actually becoming much more um, apparent to many more people that they, that they are going to become part of society. Uh, again, it's just, I think that's, that, that, uh, that, the, that the sentiment for EVs has changed. I think there's a lot to do with that, that as that innovates more and more and more, <clears throat> there's gonna be significant more opportunity to participate. Again, you know, one's looking at automobiles themselves, or you're looking at batteries, or you're looking at the minerals that are required to make the batteries. I, you know, I'm just picking up one particular topic, and I think that something like that uh, will have a. Again, I'm looking at looking at innovation. Um, you know, and, and and indeed, I think there's going to be quite a bit of that. And again, I don't know, I don't know all the different markets, uh, so I just pick on that one because I think there's going to be a. Again, 2021, 22, 23. There's going to be a lot of stuff going on in there. It's. I think there's probably going to be offshoots from that as well. I mean, you look at you look at the lidar the way in which lidar is run is being used to run automobiles. Um, if lidar is going to be used to direct automobiles, then where else is it going to be used? I mean, there's a whole host of things that are going to go on, and I think it's going to spin out all kinds of opportunity. But I don't own anything, by the way. I do own graphene. I think graphene. I think graphene is unbelievable stuff. Like the physical graphene, or you just own a graphene company? Oh, I don't own physical graphene, but I think graphene. Okay. okay. I, I put together something about <laughs> graphene. If you remember how the how um, in in the graduate, the guy turned to the young man and said, "Plastics." You recall that at all? Um, the same thing is true right now about graphene. I think I think there's a significant opportunity. If you read into this thing, it's like wow, it's one of the most incredible materials that's been identified in the last 30 years. I think there's great stuff happening, still happening. I'm going to raise my hand and ask a question. What's what? Because I don't follow EV stuff for the most part. What's graphene and? Uh... Well, the biggest the biggest issue with EV <laughs> right now is the is the duration of the charge, how long it holds the charge, and how fast you can charge. Okay, if mm -hmm. you can charge in the same amount of time it takes to fill your gas station to fill your gas tank, everybody will start to sit down and be a lot more comfortable about it rather than sitting 45 minutes. On the side of the road someplace in a in a, a flying j type of place i mean that, i don't think that that really is much i don't think that's going to get support to the idea of wholesale change so i think that in ev you have to have a significant uh, major alteration and the major alteration is in the way the batteries work uh, and the battery technology is is there um this whole thing this graphene this graphene material 
is like 30 holds 30 times the charge of anything else. It's just a it's just dramatic. So I think this, you know, when you look at this whole area, um, as I said, I've been reading a lot about EV. It's just it's it's ripe for significant opportunity, in my opinion. I don't know if I'd buy Chinese stuff, um, but I would be I would be very fascinated to find out even even Tesla again. Um, many of their new batteries are all graphene based. So the, what is it called? Their power stack, the uh, the one that's in the home. But again, I think that I think this when you get into the technology and the innovation and things that's going on, as I've said to a number of different times on these on these TIRs, is that uh, the innovation cycle does not change; it does not slow down. And um, I think that's probably one where it's going to really pick up considerably, particularly when states and governments begin to force you to um, to do away with the ICE, the internal combustion engine, and replace it with some sort of electrical. Again, that's what's one area that I'm looking at long term. By the way, I can attest to the waiting the 45. My mother-in-law just got a Tesla, and uh, you know, they they drove somewhere. They didn't they didn't realize they had to wait like 40 minutes. They were late for something because they had to wait 40 minutes for it to charge. Try, try charging it at home with a, with a with the 115 uh, volt. It takes you like four, let's say like uh, two days. Yeah, they just installed that. Yeah. If you get 220, it's going to be uh, overnight. So this yeah. this these superchargers are other. And again, you look at something like that, you look at uh, Blink, which I don't own, any of these charging stations, um, they're going to be they're going to be just stuffed in everywhere. And it's going to be yeah. incredible. Well, you know, what's going well, to that's why I, I would gravitate towards that instead of making the battery easy to swap and just you have battery swapping stations. Why would you want to do that? Why would like you? It, change it, it, why would you change out your gas tank every time you fill your fill your? Uh, well, if it was easy to do, you would you would uh, well, number one, because you know, okay, in order to have a bunch of gas filled gas tanks sitting around takes up an awful lot of space. I would think that having a battery you can swap is a lot smaller. Well, the batteries, the batteries, for example, uh, in electric vehicles, uh, span the width and uh, width and length of the space between the rear axle and the front axle. Mm. There's a ton of them, and also, again, it's it's. I don't think it's a very effective means. I think. The, what you have to do is produce them so that they last a lot longer, like the length of an ICE. They're easy to fill. Um, it, it, it's the habit. What's happening, electric vehicles are changing the habit of the way in which you uh, operate your vehicle, okay? Mm -hmm. You have to look at where you're going. You got to plan for where you're going. You know, it's not one of those things where, oh shit, I'm, out, I'm running out of gas. I got to stop over here and there's six gas stations right there. You have, you have your choice. Um, I have a friend who has a, has a Tesla and he wants to drive across the country. He has to plan. He has to make sure he goes exactly where the where the charging station is, so he doesn't stop in the middle of the road. So again, this yeah, is sounds hard. mildly it's, inconvenient. What? Sounds mildly inconvenient. Yeah, it's mildly inconvenient, and I think that 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 basically is a barrier to to most people who are looking at uh, how they're going to drive things. Again, particularly if you if you live in Texas, for example, and you're driving out in West Texas, there's not a chance in hell you're going to be wanting to go to a, uh, 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 an electric vehicle anytime soon. I think that lovely 2021 debate. For, what? 2021 debate. 2021 debate. What, what will what will uh, be the end of the year? Will we have battery swapping? Will that be the <laughs> the EV <laughs> approach that takes effect, or will uh, the the charging power and speed of batteries dramatically increase? I have another poll. I'm having another poll that I'm running on Twitter, by the way. That one is is will Uber or Lyft be acquired in 2020, 2021. Mm. You know, the funny thing about it is, is that most people sit down and say neither. And if they do say they pick Lyft, 
by a huge margin. So it's really I, I would agree with that. That's not a story. You know, what's the long what's the longevity of Uber or Lyft, given the fact that they they have seriously suffered over the last uh, let's call it a year. Or do they merge? I don't think they merge. I think somebody. I think uh, I don't even know who could. If, if somebody buys Lyft, uh, Hart, Scott Rodino, and uh, I don't think that they would pass that review. That's the HSR antitrust review. Yeah, I don't think that would either. You're probably right. But uh, but anyway, so I mean, is there any other implications for 20? I mean, we talked DV now. And, uh, I guess the question and, is, there, there's a lot of like, craziness what, out there. Have we seen how crazy it can get? That's so, a thank you. That That's what I'm talking about. Because so, I, I, I'd written that, I actually wrote that at the very beginning where I was like, you know, look, we saw craziness happen this year. That doesn't mean we can't see it again. You know, what... You know, not saying it's going to be another COVID situation, but this this could happen again. And I hope to not that it doesn't happen on an annual basis. But yeah, Gary. I just I just question. sort of think in the market, have we seen how crazy things can be? And you know, the big debate that we're having internally is is this ninety-seven or is it two thousand? Or ninety-eight and or is it two thousand? And um look, I think you know, in the coming year you're going to start having analyst estimates. For 2021 and 2022 come out over the next six months and any analyst reports and estimates over the last nine months have basically given a free pass for any covid related things it's just it, we're looking forward two years instead of one year and i think as we get into 2021 and we start to make some estimates of post-covid results that's where we'll really see what's going to happen here and i don't think those Estimates are going to be good. I don't think those results are going to be good. And I think that's going to be a driver for some corrections in the markets later in the year in 2021 on average. Now, I think there, obviously there, there's going to be pockets here where we really still can have some opportunity. But once, uh, you know, we look at start, we start looking at really post COVID operational results and connect them back to where the stock prices are today, we're going to see what that disconnect is. And I think there's a strong potential for there to be issues then in the market as a whole. Well, let me ask you a question then. So like every company in the world right now has the opportunity to implement zero-based budgeting, right? Everybody's looking at their expenses and everything and keeping a keen eye on that and, and, and their cost structures. It, it, as you see demand go back, why couldn't you see margins be higher than they were pre-COVID? Well, they certainly could be, but how do you then continue to justify some of these companies trading at uh, significant multiples to revenue <laughs> that they can they, they can have those cost cuts, they can have that margin expansion, and they're still wildly overvalued. And I hate to keep bringing up Tesla, but, you know, might as well. Yeah, no, I hear you. I, I, I am very, I mean, there's the famous, uh, what is it, the Scott McNeely quote from Sun Microsystems at 10 times uh, revenue, and they were asking about a stock price at 10 times revenues, and he's like, well, you know, to get a 10% return, I have to assume that I have no overhead. That's hard with 12,000 people and I pay no taxes, which is kind of illegal. And, you know, all that sort of good stuff. And you've got, you know, famous VCs out there saying, you know, these companies at 40 times revenues, you know, it, it's an opportunity and they may normalize at 10 times revenues. And I, and I, you know, there's a large part of me that thinks that's absolutely not sustainable for sure. Uh, or I shouldn't say for sure, but, you know, a, a large part of that is not sustainable. Um, but you'll, and you'll have one or two companies that maybe that is justifiable in the end. But um, 
you know, it's not going to be all of them and it's not, you know, but you, but you have a lot of them acting that way. That's the but, issue. I think there will be but, some that, that do grow into those valuations for sure. Um, but I think, you know, as a whole, you know, the, those who do, who are going to grow into that, like DoorDash, for example, you know, if we're talking about a hundred billion dollar valuation for a food delivery company that two years ago was not a dominant player in any way, uh, you know, I'd be worried about that type of sustainability and there will be companies that grow into it. There will be, you know, those visionary leaders that are able to defend uh, that moat there that they've created here. Um, but, you know, for the most part, I think this is market driven and not operational driven. And uh, there will be a correction at some point for, for those companies that uh, aren't able to support their, their valuations. Uh, yeah. Yeah. I think it's, I think it's interesting. Um, I wonder how much of it is right now. It feels like there are certain silos of that going on, but it doesn't feel as pervasive. I mean, we, we pay very close attention. So we see it, we see it basically everywhere, but like, but that's because we're paying very close attention to certain pockets of things. And, and there's certain things that just seem more um, obvious and because they're obvious. It seems like it's, you know, crazy everywhere. So I, I just sort of wonder if we've seen how crazy it can get across the spectrum of things. You know what I mean? Yeah, it can certainly get crazier. <laughs> you know, we've seen that uh, in, in, in history. And, you know, when, when it, that craziness will end, we'll see. You know, it, certainly we could continue this year and the next year and the next year. Um, you know, for me, I think there's some bifurcation in the market. I'm interested in those areas of the companies. There, there are a number of companies that just have not – uh, have not ridden that wave the last few years, but are quality companies that trade at reasonable prices. They have strong balance sheets that are trading at book value or below. Uh, mm -hmm. Quite a few smaller companies were involved in. I know Gary as well follows these and Kevin. So, you know, that's the area I'd feel more safe in, even if that means lagging the market uh, for a, a certain time period, because in the long run, uh, those companies are more sustainable. Those stock prices are more sustainable and will come out ahead over the long run without taking on that short-term risk. You are going for stability in many, many ways. And I think that's kind of one of those long-term investor uh, goals is to find those opportunities where you have, as you said, uh, a quality operation that is sustainable over time and is capable of being able to uh, weather um, the ups and downs that exist. So you know, again, we started talking about the craziness that exists from the Robin Hood types or whatever it is speculators. And now we're basically talking about what I think uh, long-term institutional investors want, and that is stability of a definable type that gives them the opportunity to see their growth, you know, in, in short-term spurts rather than something that's going to be, you know, overnight again. So again, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's still kind of interesting to me though. However, there's that, I think companies are operationally still trying to determine whether or not this uncertainty is going to be going away or whether or not they're going to live with it for for a longer period of time i think that's going to be the differentiator between you know as you were saying stephen between a company that's well managed and well well funded and things of that type you know can they can they project how their business could operate if these types of crazinesses continue i think it's really interesting somebody can run out of money at some point in time i think it's really interesting that um the market is very what we're complaining about, it's, it's sort of funny. Every, prior to 2020, I think everybody would complain about how short-term oriented the market is. 
And now we're sort of, now all these companies are being priced as, Stephen, you said 2022, 2023 numbers. Now we're complaining about how long-term oriented the market is and in, in its, its approach. And it's just, I just think that we're always gonna be dissatisfied in that way. And so I guess the question is gonna be, when does the focus turn more towards the short-term over the long-term, right? I mean, that's a good point. You know, I think the issue though is, hey, we're looking 22, 20, 2022, 2023, and how realistic are those projections? And uh, right now, I think they're probably rosier than what reality will be. But, you know, we'll see. I could be proven wrong. I would even take hope, hope and faith of the analysts. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, yeah. it's like spring training for baseball. Every team thinks they can make the World <laughs> Series, and then you get the cold, hard facts of autumn. Yep. Yeah, hey, I'd even, Garrett, oh, sorry, Garrett, I, I would even take it a step further and say, you know, we were complaining about there being not enough, uh, um, uh, I guess, participation in the market. And, and here we are saying, oh, the Robinhood effect and millions of new accounts being open and now complaining about that, you know? <laughs> so it's, it's, well, it's, and, it's, and then it's before, and then before people were complaining about the five or six stocks that were leading the way and everything else was sucking wind. And, you know, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know, last I looked, the Russell 2000 has beaten the S&P on the year. So I, I wonder what, what the uh, excuse du jour is going to be for some of these people. Kevin, you were saying? Sorry, I cut you off. You're good? All right. Well, okay. I think this is a good place to end it. I will say this is a, I think this has been a very fascinating conversation. We'll use it as our time capsule uh, when we do this again at the end of 2021. So, you know, to close us out, everyone, uh, tell us your New Year's plans uh, as elaborate as they probably will be this year. Uh, so, uh, Kevin, I'm going to start with you and uh, where people can go and follow you on uh, Twitter. Oh, God. Yeah, I'm at the good prick and I'm actually active these days. So you know, <laughs> listen to what I'm saying. Listen to what I'm saying. I'm educating people. You'll become brilliant as a result of uh, sticking around and paying attention. But tonight I'm going to be drinking some fine bubbly. There you go. All right, Gary, how about you? What am I doing on New Year's? I, I'm going to put the kids to bed and uh, probably do what I do every night. And uh, I assume that my wife will be asleep on the couch by 1030. So, uh, I, and, uh, you know, I'll probably have some champagne at midnight and see if I can't do dry January. Ah, there you go. See, what Gary actually means when he says he's going to do what he does every night is that he's always researching more microcaps uh, from, from, I think, 1030 on to like two. I'll get the random text of like, yeah, no, title good to go. So I, I, he's going to be he's going to be researching tonight. I think we can uh, we can make a safe bet on that. I read K's, Q's, form tens, and uh, you know whatever else may come the way, and then uh, a whole bunch of other rando nonsense. So <laughs> I think he's not going to be doing micro caps. He's going to be doing micro beers. Yeah, micro beers. There we go. Yeah, that's a good shot at that. There yeah. we go. All right, Stephen might have the most allowed. He's in Miami right now. So what, what, yeah, what are you I was going to lead over to proxy statements and things like that. I think now is the Uh Gary will write up some reports on the recent Qs and 8Ks and things like that. But uh, no, I'm, I'm uh, enjoying myself down here. Just got here. So uh, happy new year to everyone. Looking forward to starting off uh, next year and with a clean slate. And uh, I just want to thank Bobby for uh, everything we've done uh, this year with SNN Network and his growth and getting getting to know Kevin and Gary uh, and, and everyone else who's participated. We appreciate that. And uh, I've had a lot of fun doing that. It's been enriching. Uh, there are some positives that have come out of COVID as we've seen here. And I'm really looking forward to, uh, to continuing to grow the network in 2021 and continued success for everyone on here, especially you, Bobby. So thank you very much. And I can be found at uh, Stephen underscore Keel on Twitter. 
Thank you, Stephen. Thank you, Stephen. I really do appreciate that. Thank you. Thank you. And thank you all to everybody who's watched, uh, you know, one episode or every episode of TIR, the Investors Roundtable. You know, I'm, I'm trying to push the acronym. So if you want to call it TIR, that's that's good too. But uh, really, truly, thank you. Thank you. Uh, Happy New Year. Be, please be safe. Let's get through this. Let's get these vaccines when, when, when they're available. And, uh, you know, I, I want to do a few of these live in 2021. All right. That's our, that's the goal. All right, do a couple TIRs live. So with that, thank cool. you. Happy New Year. You follow me on Twitter at Bobby K. Craft, B-O-B-B-Y-K-K-R-F-T. You can see every episode of the Investor Roundtable on the YouTube channel, youtube.com slash SNNY. I wanted to do that plug quick. All right, so thank you. Happy New Year. See you in 2021. Happy New Year.